I'm so excited. Um, the pastoral team is growing and growing. We have two fabulous women, uh, Pastor Valerie and Pastor Sharon. They're joining this dynamic team. Uh, Pastor Arshel and Pastor Jason and Pastor Valerie and Pastor Sharon will be joining the uh, teaching team. And we get to hear some voices from some dynamic women, right? God uses women in a different way. And uh, I know they use my mom and grandma. You're talking about some deep saints. So I can't wait to hear from them. If you are a veteran and served our country, can you stand? We just want to honor you today. If you are a veteran. Amen. There they are. Amen. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. You can have a seat. Your past, your elder Zeke over there, we had a lunch one time and, you know, he was a captain in the army and he let us know he was a trained killer. He just, just let us know. I'm sorry, Zeke. Sorry. Zeke. <laughs> Any chance I get, I'm going to tease these young guys. I'm sorry. It's just how I am. Will you pray with me? Father God, we do thank you. We worship you and we honor you. We're so blessed to be called your children, your offspring. Wow, I just, when I think of the scriptures that we are partakers of your goodness and your mercy, none of us are saved by our own merit, but it's by your grace and only your grace that we are saved. You touched our hearts one day. You knocked and we let you in and you became our savior. And so, Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, uh, that you will give us more revelation of who you are. You can touch the hardest heart, Father, and your credit is good with abundant life. We don't have to wait until we see it. We can praise you now. And so we thank you for what you're going to do in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been hanging with us, we're in a six-part series. We're on the fifth part of this series called Nobody Greater. And uh, Pastor Jason started it five weeks ago. Um, and he actually called uh, Anthony and I in there and said, hey, let's continue and make this a series. And I'm glad he did. The first week, he talked about ascribing to God what is rightfully his, and that is honoring him, worshiping him, adoring him, and ascribing to him his worth. The second week, he talked about you and I guarding our hearts. Then I came in in the third week, and while I was in prayer, I was thinking about how do I follow that, guarding our hearts. And I began to pray, and the Lord pressed on my heart that you and I have a common enemy called Satan. He was a worshiper before he fell. And the very thing that Satan wants to do is divide our hearts so that we will not be completely devoted to the God who deserves all of our worship, all of our praise. He deserves all of us, not part of us, but all of us. God said in Exodus, as you remember, you should have no other gods besides me. I am the Lord your God. And then he went on to say, do not make any grave images on the earth or in the sea. And you remember when I was saying that God is basically saying, I am so infinite and so great, don't try with your puny hands to carve any images of me. And I thought about when I was in high school and we would go into the mall and my then girlfriend who broke up, I'm, I'm saying, um, 
the girl that I was dating at the time, we would go into this booth and we would take a picture and then it come out so ugly. I couldn't even show my friends. Even when I tried, I was like, that's not really a good picture of her. Now, that's what God is saying. I'm so great and so infinite and so powerful that you will mess it up. You will mess it up. And that's why when we talked about Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 11, when he said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. As far as heaven is from the earth are my thoughts and my ways from you. So don't even try it. And then we understand in the new covenant that God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But this thing that Jason put on my heart about protecting our hearts really touched me because there's also a translation when he says, don't make any images or don't have any gods besides me. If you haven't noticed that human beings are an idol shop, we will worship something. And so God, I began to think about the idols in our hearts. Now in America, we don't really worship statues and bow down to them, but we do have a problem and I call it American idol, idols of our hearts. The first week when I was talking about it, I was talking about relationships. Now, relationships are a good thing, but if we make them the main thing, they can become an idol. And we looked at Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, that triangle there. And Jacob was so sprung on Leah, can I go back and tell you she was a brick house? That's what the Bible says. Rachel was a brick house. I'm so glad you guys are learning. (laughs) Rachel was a brick house, and Leah was not. The Bible even said something about her eyes, and I don't know if they were insinuating that she was not attractive, but we knew her sister was. And that's who Jacob set his heart on, to the point where he spent four times the amount that was required for a bride in that day. Seven years, his father-in-law tricked him, gave him the other sister, Leah. He worked another seven years, finally got his dream girl. But his dream girl couldn't have babies, but Leah could. And every child that Leah had, she said, I'm the one that is not loved. God loves me so much that I am bearing sons for this man. And every child she had, she thought that that would be her identity and it would become significant. And finally, Jacob would love her, but he never did. His heart was still on his sister, right? Then we moved toward and we started talking about money, possessions, and status. And do I have that scripture? I think it was Jeremiah 9. 23, was that it? All the Bible scholars in here. In that verse, that was the text um, last week, and we were talking about, do not, put, do not boast in your wisdom, do not boast in your power, do not boast in your riches, but if you're gonna boast in anything, boast in the Lord that you understand and know him, right? So one of the takeaways that I wanted you to take away from the first idol of not having people be your idols is that Satan is trying to steal our intimacy from God. I want you to write that down. He wants your wife, your husband, your boss, your best friend to be your savior and not God. The second thing that Satan is trying to steal when we put pride in our possessions, in our status, in our wealth, he wants to steal our security from God. He wants those things to be our savior instead of Jehovah Jireh. Now, I'm getting ready to wrap my part up. I wanna talk about a very deep idol that's in all of our hearts that we gotta take to the Lord. And that's our culture, 
in our religion, right? And so let's turn to the text for the day. And it's Acts 17, verse 26 and 27. I'm going to read from the Amplified. Here's what it says. And he made, we're talking about our Heavenly Father, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times in the boundaries of their lands and territories. Why did he do it? So that we would all come to know him. That's what the next verse says. Let me read that again. And he made from one man every nation, every single person in here, every different ethnic background of mankind to live on the first. And he determined our appointed times and boundaries of their lands and territories. I'm so glad that he brought me into the world in 1962. I love it. Uh, let's, let's look at Revelations. Let's look at what heaven is going to look like. Revelation 7, 9 through, uh, verses 9 through 11. I'll read it real quick. After this, this is John writing, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isn't that awesome? That's what heaven's gonna look like. When I was talking to Arshel about this, I said, you know, one of the things that I'm proud of, of being here, and, and we can actually boast in this, and we know it's a God thing. I don't know why he did it in London life, but look at us. Look at us. I mean, look at the diversity here. That is a God thing. You know why I know it's a God thing? Because I gotta tell you a little story. In 1973, I'll never forget it, I was, I got saved in 1973, and I knew I was sure enough saved. You just couldn't walk up. I mean, the pastor drilled you. I was saved. I was living in this beautiful community called East Palo Alto. 1973, five years after Martin Luther King died, all black neighborhood. My dad decided to move to Cupertino. I'm like, what? Cupertino? First question, are there black people there? He said, yes, my father lied to me. <laughs> he did, Margie, he lied to me. We were the only black family there, and my first white friend, his name was Craig Fordyce. He was cool, Craig was cool. He was gentle, he was kind. The people treated me well, but I got my first experience into the white world with Craig Fordyce. He's trying to make me like rock music, I'm trying to make him like soul music. His favorite station was KFRC. I'm going, nah, man, KSOL. What's wrong with you? KDIA. I had my big fro and I had my little fork in it. I said, you can't do this, huh? You can't do this, you know? And, and so we would just share our cultures. He ate over my house. The first time I had lasagna was with Mrs. Fordyce. First time he had soul food was with my mother. I, I know you're gonna get ruined. You can't have my mom, because once you taste some soul food, you're gonna wanna be a soul brother. Craig was cool. Even when he tried to dance, I said, you are lucky I'm your friend. I'm going to teach you how to dance, and the girls are going to love you. But look, my mother was concerned about his soul. Craig's parents never went to church, never talked about God. 
My mom said, when are you going to invite him to church? I said, in East Palo Alto? An all-black church? The place where he should have been the most comfortable, the place where I should have been the most comfortable inviting him to, this 11-year-old Keith has some issues. Wait a minute. Will my friends call me a sellout? Will they pick on Craig? My mother don't understand. Everybody in this church ain't saved. Johnny Vickers ain't saved. Marcus ain't saved. They are, I just started naming God. I'm going to have some problems. With, I can't even make it to this main sanctuary. But that's my boy. If I invite him, now I got to fight. Now I'm going to get in trouble because I'm fighting. It's, all this is going through my 11-year-old mind. The safest place that I should have invited Craig was a black church, but I'm tripping because of my culture of values. What I was told about white people, did I want to get teased? That was more important than his soul. And my mother, being a spirit-filled sister in Christ, I said, Craig ain't comfortable. He won't be comfortable. Well, he's comfortable when he spends the night with us and ain't no black pe white people here. I was like, oh my God. <sighs> the pressure. This pressure of cultural pride is nothing new. Let's look at this case study with our prophet Jonah in the book of Jonah. Now, isn't it interesting that we have a prophet that is hearing from the Lord and look what God says in Jonah 1. God says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim judgment against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Hmm. Jonah has a problem because Nineveh, little background, was founded by Nimrod shortly after the flood in Genesis 10 and 11. It was the capital of Assyrian, and it was a strong empire. But God said, go to them because their wickedness have come up to me, right? Go before them and tell them that if they repent, I might not destroy them. Isn't that a good thing? You, prophet, go to this wicked city, because I'm about to destroy them. But if they repent, I won't do it. Now, Nineveh was an evil empire. The prophet Nahum says that they were so ruthless that they would skin their enemies alive. Jonah knew this about them. He knew about their wickedness. One of the scholars said, to put it in our modern day terms, it would be like asking a Jewish rabbi in 1943 to go tell Hitler to stop it. Stop killing my people, stop your evil. Would he even make it to Hitler? So, so you can see why he took off and was like, I'm out of here, Lord. You wanted me to go east, I'm going west. But you can't run from the Lord, am I right? And so Jonah was concerned not only about his well-being, but technically we're gonna see how his nation and his ethnicity really was his idol. Let's prove it by scripture. So we see that Jonah disobeys God. God calls, uh, he, he gets into the boat, we know that part. And then he gets thrown out, the well swallows him, and then he decides to pray. Smart man. That goes to tell us, that's, a, that's another nugget, right? We can pray anywhere. <laughs> I mean, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? There is no place where we can't pray. So the well spits him out, and then he says, now go to Nineveh, right? This time he goes. 
But it's interesting. He, be, he begins to proclaim to the people, you need to repent. You need to turn from your evil ways. And it finally got to the king of Nineveh. And they believed the word from the prophet. And so everybody from the least to the greatest began to repent of their evil ways. And God spared them. Now, let's turn to Jonah 4. Here's the part that blew my mind. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still in my country? This is the part that blew me away. He says, Because I knew that you are gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. And when sinners turn to you, you revoke the sentence of disaster against them. Therefore, O Lord, just take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? The prophet was mad that a loving, kind God spared people that did not look like him, that did not worship like him, and that did not know his God. He hung on to his ethnicity and, and his patriotism so much that he was mad that a loving God would spare another nation, even in their wickedness. I got a nice quote I want to read from A.W. Tozer. I think it's beautiful. And I think the point is that I'll make the point later. Listen to this quote by A.W. Tozer. Do you remember when we were talking about last week some of the immutable attributes of our God? And one of the things that I love about him is that he's holy, he's pure and undefiled. And that holiness is like the center of every other attribute. So if he's perfect, that means his wisdom is perfect. He uses his power perfectly. He uses his all knowledge perfectly. There is nothing that this being doesn't do that is not pure and holy. That alone, and he's immutable. I mean, he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That should give us comfort. Here's what A.W. Tozer said about the holiness of our God. Check this out. Since God's first concern for his universe is his moral health. That is, it's holiness. Whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. Isn't that awesome? The first thing he says is, the first concern about this holy God, I never heard this term, is the moral health of his universe. In other words, his holiness. Then he says, whatever is contrary to this, that wickedness and that sinfulness, is under his eternal displeasure. Now, God was telling Jonah, I want these wicked people to repent so I don't destroy them. He was more concerned that if they repented, that means they would be around long enough and they might attack his country. He wasn't concerned about their soul. He wasn't concerned about their relationship. His God was his nation. His God was his ethnic background. Then he goes on to say, to preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would, de would destroy it, the holiness. When he arises to put down in any uh, sin and save the world through its imperable moral collapse, he is said to be angry. Every wrathful judgment in the history of this world has been a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God 
the wrath of God and the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys mankind. The biggest thing that destroys mankind and the only thing that we will experience the wrath of God is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief. God loves his children so much that he gave his only begotten son that Job, Jonah didn't understand. It's not about just the nation of Israel. It's a whosoever believed, right? So this thing that idols can cause, one of the things I wrote down is when an idol grabs a hold of your heart, it distorts your reality. We all think and understand that a God that is patient and compassionate is a good thing. None of us would disagree with that. But if, like Jonah, your idol is your ultimate good, and all you care about is the power and the status, and the status of your people and your nation, anything that gets in the way of that can potentially be a bad thing. Our idols can distort the reality so much that what we call good, what we call evil is good, and what we call good is evil. Imagine Jonah, a prophet of God, thinking a good thing was an evil thing. He did not want someone who did not look like him, worship like him, and serve his God. He didn't even want them to know his God. It actually says in the verse that he actually, verse 9 says, Then Jonah went out to the city, and he sat on the east of it. Then he made himself a shelter and sat under his shade so that he could see what would happen. Hmm. They were so wicked that he didn't even rejoice that they repented. Isn't that amazing? A prophet who God called to go give the good news was angry that these people actually repented. Hmm. Then in the next verse, it says, So the Lord God prepared a plant, and he grew over Jonah to be a shade over his head to spare him from discomfort. And Jonah was happy about the plant. But then the next day, a worm came. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> a worm came and destroyed it, right? And so Jonah gets mad, and he actually tells God, it's just better for me to die. Then God says to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry at the loss of a plant, something that you didn't make, right? And you're angry about that? He says, then he says, you had compassion on a plant. Then he's then God gets down to verse 11. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there was 120,000 human beings? Hmm. See what an idol will do? See what an idol will do? Now, let's go to the new covenant. We, we can't just dog out Jonah. This heritage of our cultures and our ethnicities we, they can't help. We, we, we're just, whatever, whatever ethnicity you are, you would have to admit that we all think our culture is the bomb. Period. Let's just be honest about it. Like, that's how black people feel. We think we the bomb. I know white people feel that way. I have a lot of white friends. I have a lot of Hispanic friends. Uh, I have a lot of, all of us think that our culture is it. We just do. And it's a sin that's in us but the sad thing is, when you run into Jesus Christ and you hear about that it's a whosoever believes in God 
shall not perish. How come we still don't change? How come we hold on to our ethnicity and our values and how we degrade one another? The beautiful thing is, do you know that it is, it's, it's an old problem? I want to turn to the problem of an apostle who followed Jesus Christ, walked with Jesus Christ by the name of Peter. We find him in Galatians 2. Now, you can't get too mad because this stuff is handed down. These lies about humanity is handed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. And the truth be told, we're still experiencing it now, right? From generation to generation, lies about our culture, lies about who's superior and inferior, lies about who should look like this and look like that, lies upon lies upon lies. Now, Satan loves it. Because once you become a Christian, there is neither Greek, come on, abundant life. We're all what? One in Christ. But what he tries to destroy and when he does well, the only thing that destroys us is our, is our biases and our prejudice when we bring into this beautiful gospel. But what it destroys is our unity. He loves it. So it's handed down from generation to generation to generation. Even so, where you would think that Peter is walking with Jesus and Jesus, he sees him talking to a Samaritan woman, a woman and a Samaritan. Then when he gave, remember when, he, remember when Jesus talked about who is your neighbor? He talked about the, the priest, the Levi priest, and the rabbi who passed by the man on the road. And then a Samaritan came and gave him lodging and food and helped him. Then when he asked the disciples, this is how bad, <laughs> this is how bad racism is. Now, who is, who is the good neighbor? The man, they didn't even say the Samaritan, the man who picked him up and they bumbling. Who? They couldn't even say the word Samaritan. But you would think that Peter, who was walking with Jesus, saw Jesus talking to the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. You would think that he saw Jesus heal Gentiles, that he would not have this problem when he got saved. And then Paul picks it up. In Galatians 2, it says, 2 and 11 through 13, it says, Now when Peter came to Antioch, Peter said, uh, Paul says this, I oppose him face to face about his conduct there because he stood condemned by his own actions. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat his meals with the Gentiles. But when the men from Jerusalem arrived, he began to withdraw and separate himself from the Gentile believers because he was afraid of those from the circumcision. Now, the rest of the Jews joined him in their hypocrisy, ignoring their knowledge that Jewish and Gentile Christians are now united under a new covenant into one faith with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Whoa. Paul calls out one of our apostles. If you don't think that our culture and our ethnicity can divide us, keep reading the scriptures. An apostle who was acting one way when the Jews wasn't there, he was cool to eat with these Gentiles, but when his boys came, he felt embarrassed. No, I didn't feel that bad when I was studying that. An 11-year-old Keith was tripping. His friend who he loves named Craig Fordyce is white. I didn't even witness to him. I was so concerned about my own reputation with my people in East Palo Alto 
I was so concerned about what they teased me, called me an Uncle Tom and all these other names, say I'm whitewashed. I didn't even witness to them. And this is my friend Craig, and my mom was like, how come you're not inviting him to church? I was like this apostle. I was a hypocrite. In one area, I was cool. We would talk, we would have fun. And, but the most important thing is to tell him about Jesus Christ. Now, I know I'm 11, but still, I know him, and he doesn't know him. I didn't want to invite him to church because I didn't want to deal with Marcus and Randy and, right, I was concerned about my own reputation. Am I still a brother? You know what I mean? <laughs> and um, I think it's shameful because... Years later, he moved. I never once talked about Jesus Christ. His family never went to church. Never. Never once did I talk about Jesus Christ to him. Not one time. They finally moved to Saratoga. And, you know, I started to grow in Christ. And I started to understand that the most important thing is not the color of your skin. is that who do you say Jesus is? And so I promised myself that I would never, no matter what your ethnic background is, you would never be in my presence for some time. And I didn't mention the good news. I didn't mention the good news. But I can't get too mad at our brother because before I end, I want to talk about religion for a moment. When you and I make a good thing, like our faith, when we take some of our ideologies and, we, and they might be true, whatever it is, you pick your poison, but when we make that our God and we stand on whatever principle you want to stand on, as opposed to grace and mercy, we become what the Bible calls a scoffer, where we become self-righteous. We become like the Pharisees. We're so, dog we're so interested in being right. I don't care if it's same-sex marriage, abortion, you name it. We are so engrossed and impressed with our ideology that it becomes an idol. And we forget how Jesus Christ is the answer to it all. It is not your political party. And I can tell when you're jacked up because if your president don't win, you think the world's gonna fall down. You think the savior is that president or that party uh, whether it's Republican, Democrat, Independent, whoever it is, you, you think that's the savior. When the real problem with humanity has nothing to do with politics, has nothing to do with economics, the real problem is what, G, what God said. The same God yesterday, look at their wickedness, tell them to repent. Christians, we know what the real problem is in this world. It is an unsaved world that does not believe in us, Jesus Christ, our savior, and yet we are stumbling and making these other things way more important than what the real issues are. I'm kind of ashamed sometimes of how Christians act when, when we got a vote and politics is going down because every Christian should have one thing in common. We should hate evil. We should hate injustice, period. I don't care what it is. There's no party there. That's what we should hate. So anyway, I'm going off. But anyway, I do not want us to be a people that will make politics our God. We need to be careful about religion. And what I mean by that is the gospel is so pure and we mess it up. You know, we mess it up by thinking you gotta have this progressive forgiveness when the Bible says that he's done, it is finished. You know, we, we bring our ideology in, well, you better confess. Wait, wait, I just read that all my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. 
which, which one is it? Is it a progressive forgiveness or am I completely forgiven? What I'm saying is we will bring our feeble brains into a pure gospel message. God said that we are now one new man. We are no longer Gentiles. We're no longer Jews. We're now one. The wall of hostility has been broken because of our Savior. How dare we not understand this good news and not look at revelations and go, we're all going to be there. Forget my blackness. Forget my white. That is not greater than your salvation. That is not greater than me being a light in this world. Your whiteness, your Asian, your Hispanic is not greater than God telling you, go talk to these people who don't know me. Come up. Come up, Jason. Come up. Come up, worship team. So as I end, though, in this, when I'm talking about our hearts, I want to end with just two thoughts. I want us to be like David, Psalms 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. He's all I need. And then he says in Psalms, I think it's 73 or 75, he says, who do I have in heaven but you? And who do I desire? I desire no one on earth but you. Let's guard our hearts, like Pastor Jason said. Let's guard our hearts against these idols. And I know when we do that, people will see our light shine, our trust in God will increase. We will no longer worry about what man thinks about us, how we look. You're all fearfully and wonderfully made in God. The enemy is a liar. You don't have to be a size two. <laughs> God loves you just the way you are with your beautiful hair and your stomach like mine. I don't care how you look. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. See how the enemy lies to us? Thinking we got to look like some movie star? Who made that up? The world. Go ahead. But I want us to have that heart transplant where we understand that the Lord is my shepherd. He's all I need.